is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. So what have you been reading? A novel that made you laugh? A biography that made you cry? Or maybe you read something that comforted you, or that changed the way you feel about the world, or reasserted something you've always felt. Or perhaps you've read something that makes you furious. I have a friend who once threw the Brett Easton Ellis novel she was reading out the window. She couldn't bear to have it in her home for one second longer. Or maybe all this COVID trauma has you unable to read anything longer than the back of a cereal box. Whether you've got reader's block or are reading up a storm, we've got you covered on Fine Music Radio this winter. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and for the next hour, you'll be listening to Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. Good choice. We have our usual roundup of the latest must-read fiction and non-fiction, an interview, and a very special new insert, teen book choice, as well as some really exciting guest reviewers. But first, as you know, we're huge fans of local and liquor here on Book Choice, and this title falls squarely in that category. Leanne Voicy opens the show for us with a book called Trust Your Well by Hans McKenzie. If you've ever interacted with prickly shop managers, lackluster service providers, and any aspect of corporate culture. This book is for you. Trust Your Well by Hans McKenzie Main contains a cornucopia of familiar, infuriating, surprising, predictable, and often hilarious writing, which hits home squarely on the nose. Main, a South African living in Cape Town, is a seasoned Mail and Guardian columnist and independent copywriter who's compiled his short pieces and email correspondence from over the years giving us a book which is definitely fun to read while highlighting the nuances, follies and unexpected kindnesses of the many people we are forced to engage with on this planet of ours. His writing style is soothingly unpretentious and his content gives us something to mull over while we have a wry laugh. There is much to relate to here as a consumer and member of society without having to get depressed or go the way of all the Karens out there. I highly recommend this quick and quirky read. Trust Your Well, Emails and Other Writings from a Discerning Consumer by Hans McKenzie Main is published by HMM Books and is available on Amazon. There's so much writing talent in SA, and we certainly have plenty of stories to tell. Anthony Friesen tells us about The Profiler Diaries from the case files of police psychologist Gerard Labuskagny. In this gripping account, former SAP's head profiler, Dr. Gerard Labuskagny, recalls some of the 110 murder cases and countless other bizarre crimes he analysed during his career. Warning. This is not a book for you, if you're sensitive or impressionable. There are parts that you'd very likely find disturbing. The Profiler Diaries by Dr. Gerard Labuskachny. But on the other hand, if you are fascinated by crime and the criminal mind, a world that is far removed from yours, then this is a book for you. His style of writing makes it accessible for the average reader. You don't need a degree in psychology or criminal investigation to understand and follow his narrative. Dr. Gerard Labaskochny spent fourteen and a half years in the South African police services, and was involved in over 100 cases, 
dealing with serial murderers, rapists, and other bizarre cases. There are 15 other categories that I haven't mentioned in this review, all too awful. This is not like the movies. A real crime scene is ugly, not sanitized, and that's real blood, not the work of special effects. He writes that for the most part, serial murderers are very normal. They're not raving maniacs or evil geniuses. As he put it, they spend far more time not killing than killing, if that is any comfort. He also makes the point that prison is not a place where you get three meals a day, medical treatment, and you can study. It's better than outside. If you think this, to quote him again, you're an absolute idiot. You have no idea. Just my limited experience in prisons over the years of my studies, and later as a policeman, have been enough to convince me that I never, ever want to end up there. I find it alarming to read of the top investigators who have resigned from the saps, thanks in large part to a failure at the top. Think of Jackie Celebi, the disgraced former National Commissioner of Police who shut down all task teams and most specialized units. To quote Gerard Labaskachny, such ill-conceived ideas are born when you appoint someone with no police experience to run a law enforcement agency. The loss to the police of experienced specialized unit detectives is still being felt to this day. One has to feel for the good cops, and there are good cops, who struggle on in frequently difficult circumstances. Dr. Lobeskachny makes the point that over his years with the Saps, he worked with some of the most amazing, dedicated, and smartest people he's ever encountered. As he put it, any idiot can get a Ph.D., but not every person can solve a murder. Dr. Lobeskachny admits that the reality is we don't know why someone becomes a serial killer, rapist, or some other type of violent crime. I haven't mentioned any of the cases he's worked on. I'll leave that for you to investigate. An intriguing read. I wouldn't call it enjoyable, but certainly most interesting and revealing. So if crime is your thing, I recommend you're getting a copy of the Profiler Diaries by Dr. Gerard Lovaskochny, published by Penguin Books, retail price 290 rand. After all that murder and mayhem, I think we need some Ella Fitzgerald. This is I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm, and you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, brought to you by exclusive books and, of course, Ella Fitzgerald. The snow is snowing, the wind is blowing, but I can't weather the storm. What do I care how much it may storm? I've got my love to keep me warm. I can't remember a word. December, just watch those icicles fall. What do I care if icicles fall? 
to keep me warm Off with my overcoat Off with my glove I need no overcoat I'm burning with love My heart's on fire The flame grows higher So I will weather the storm, storm, storm What do I care how much it may snow I've got my love, love to keep me to the next review by the wonderful Beryl Eichenberger of a book called Isle by Claire Robertson. Claire has to be one of South Africa's finest literary fiction authors. Her 2014 debut, Spiral House, won the Sunday Times Fiction Prize, and just about everything she's ever written has been either long-listed or short-listed for some prize or other. As someone on our book club on Facebook, the Good Book Appreciation Society, said, I would read her shopping list if she published it. Isle is a spectacular novel. I'm so curious and still thinking about the link between the two islands of the story, even weeks after having read it. And I have to give a shout out to the cover, which is really just a genius piece of artwork. No man is an island entire of itself. This famous John Donne quote came to me as I started reading Isle by Claire Robertson. And it stayed with me. The very notion of being on a small island conjures up a sense of isolation, sitting on the periphery of society, an onlooker perhaps. Claire Robertson is a multi-award-winning South African author who writes with a melodic pen, haunting, nuanced, and meaningful. Her prose is a little like the waters that might surround an island, swelling to match the significance of her stories, ebbing to allow one to think through her narrative. Isle is her latest offering, and she says the theme is, quote, making a place for yourself and the cost of carving this out, but also the unexpected freedoms that this brings, unquote. I was a challenging, let ultimately satisfying read. Splitting into two stories that cross centuries, we meet two women in very different worlds, depicted using two different writing styles. In the medieval world of 1289, when the first story, Forced from This Place, is set, she writes with meticulous construction, speaking of a slower time, creating a very different era. Quote, 
On that main river, the sometimes steeper banks and betimes incredible breath, and the fierce castles imitating rock, impress the visitor with their force, and people's doings are by contrast small, unquote. It is almost another language, but not quite, as careful reading defines the meaning. I did, however, have to look up words like senite, meaning weak, amongst others, but her use of present tense throughout brings the reader firmly into each time frame, and this is Robertson's strength. This island is home to a group of unmarried women, semi-nuns inspired by the Beguine communities of the 13th century. They are led by their magistra, Lutgard. Unrecognized by the church, they have chosen to unbind themselves from the men who would shackle them to seek a freedom from the expected norm at the time. But it is Meshtild, artist and sculptor, to whom we are drawn. It is she who finds the young man stranded on the beach. She who sees his face as that of a perfect Christ model. But in the end, she who carves a larger-than-life virgin, which becomes her masterwork and her freedom. Her story will resonate as she uses unfamiliar tools and teaches herself the man's trade of woodcarver, a skill that Robertson herself has. Within the bounds of the story of the isolation, privacy, and celibacy the women have chosen, the emotions of desire and lust are fulfilled, despite the seeming separations. This speaks to that very quote of Don's. Axo brings us to post-World War II, the early 1950s, and Second Lieutenant Lily Kinsella and Sergeant Berg are on a mission to dismantle ordnance units in far-flung places. On a tidy island somewhere north, there is a munitions pile that will exacerbate their taut relationship. As a wartime flight nurse, Kinsella's experiences have marked her, and she seeks solace with men that cross her path, but would never be permanent. There is a barely discernible vengeance in her actions, her debt to Berg. She owes him much, she owes him nothing, outweighed by her own flaunted needs. As I navigated the story, I was intrigued as to whether the unexploded munitions is an unspoken metaphor for unexploded emotions. Robertson's story takes you inward. It raises many questions, and rereading will be a given. As a woman, I questioned my freedom, its cost, and if I have truly been myself. Hovering in this intense narrative, however, is that remaining isolated should never be the final choice. This is Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, proudly sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your book hostess with the mostess, Paige Nick. Up next, Philip Todras chats to Jay Patha. Jay Patha, Performance and Spatial Politics in South Africa, by Kertu H. Katrak, is published by Indiana University Press. And I'm going to quote from Kertu Katrak's statement about Patha's evolving spatial politics in line with his nation's political landscape during and after apartheid within a democracy that has yet to fulfill its promises to the majority. Jay, how is that for an introduction to you and the work that you've been doing so phenomenally in South Africa? <laughs> well, you know, I've always maintained, I think, as, as an artist, you work in your studio and you think through the work, uh, you think through the work in its specific context because you want to maintain a kind of an integrity with what it is that you're doing. But you don't necessarily think of it as a kind of a national or an international work. I think it's the minutiae of how you deal with these specific problems inside the studio and applying that, that is your major impulse. So when it gathers this momentum and then 
you know, it goes onto a, a larger platform or it moves around across the oceans. And then indeed, when it starts to be reviewed or written about, and then finally, in this kind of format, the large book, it, I think in some respects, you can, one, you know, I'm gratified that that kind of concentrated thinking that happens in the workspace, in the art space, that it becomes extrapolated in this kind of way because you realize that the years and years of thinking through spatial politics in South Africa and how it has affected the human and the construction of the human and how the human has been affected. And when you were working with these bodies in the rehearsal studio, you realize how uh, dense that work actually is. So I hope it's seen not just as a, as a recognition or a representation of my work, but I think most artworks that, that uh, pay attention to the, uh, the very dense context within which we work, especially in South Africa. But I think the realization of where you stand was, I think, quite important from somebody with an international status like Kato Katrak, sort of having these continuing conversations with you over an extended period of time, that you, in a sense, yourself have a realization of where you stand and how diverse your career has been. For instance, I got to know you, and the only thing I got to know you was when I saw your extraordinary work called The Kitchen at the Brett Kebbell Awards uh, that was in 2003, and just being blown away by what I'd seen. And I was very fortunate. I saw the first performance of that day and then spent the rest of the day watching every single other performance of The Kitchen to try and absorb yeah. it and being fascinated by it. And you know that's been my association with you. So, for instance, I never even knew that you were the founding artistic director since 1997 of the Soweto Sonke Dance Theatre Company in Durban. Was that the starting point for you where... And I know that you're still involved in terms of reaching out and finding the other. Um, well, yeah, to, to some extent. I, I, I mean, I think a lot of this goes back, and I think Ketu does that in the book, is to see how this kind of work uh, started, yeah, I guess, in my early university days, you know, when I came face-to-face -face with my, how my artwork, how making dance and creating performance needs to speak with my particular life and the and the difficulties of of growing up and going to university in the late 70s and the early 80s and i think from then on how performance i remember in my honors year for example writing my honors paper in 19 oh, <laughs> this really dates me 1981 on the use of theater and performance or alternate performance as a means of raising political consciousness. And I, I really took that quite seriously that at that moment, at that time, because we were between uh, two states of emergency at that time, I was convinced that that would be the rest of my life. My, the rest of my life at that time would be how would performance reflect the political imperatives of, of the time towards some kind of levels of freedom. Of course, at that time, we never thought about independence. In the, in, the, in the early 80s, we weren't thinking about that. We were only, at that time, I was only thinking about how performance can help raise political consciousness, raise levels of protest. So I think it was, it was that kind of response to the, the severity of apartheid and 
what it did. And, I, you know, many of the performances were banned. The special branch came and closed it down and and all of that. But I, I think that's when, you know, the seed was planted and growing in an atmosphere of black consciousness and, and all of that. You kind of began to be clear that the only way art can be tolerated actually in a, in that society is when it is closely connected with its political context otherwise it was simply not useful you know, well, it I has been told. it has been very useful because you have highlighted so many things along your very varied national and international career and i think the best way of summing up is well i must mention this seeing what remains in 2019 which i think probably was one of your last times that you actually had a real performance i've never forgotten the moment when it ended and right. was it ended in complete stunned silence and it was only suddenly that someone had the audacity to clap and then there's this tremendous response and a standing ovation and i think this is the greatest compliment you can ever pay someone and i'm going to just sum up by quoting Catherine Cole of the University of Washington. Jay Pather's own artistic as well as curatorial practices are deeply engaged with South Africa's histories and legacies of injustice, segregation and racialization, as well as the country's aspirations for a new dispensation, for a better, more equal, just and democratic future. He is fully deserving of this full-length study. That's Jay Pather, Performance and Spatial Politics in South Africa, by Kertu H. Katrak, Indiana University Press, and something really worth reading. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather, since my gal and I together keeps raining all the time. Life is bare, gloom and misery everywhere, stormy weather, just can't get my poor self together, I'm weary all the time, oh yeah, so weary all the time, when she went away. Blues walked in and met me. If she stays away, a rocking chair will get me. All I do is pray the Lord above will let me.
That was Stormy Weather, sung by the King's Singers here on Fine Music Radio. We recently experienced one of the most anticipated book events of the year, with the launch of Damon Galgut's latest novel, The Promise. Born in Pretoria, Galgut is a shining star on the local and international literary stage. He's been shortlisted for the International Booker Prize twice, and many are speculating that with this latest offering we might see him sweep the prize, third time lucky. Multi-talented freelance writer and editor Margot Bertelsman joins us as a guest reviewer today to chat about The Promise. The first Damon Galgut novel I read was The Good Doctor in 2003, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. I remember it made a huge impression on me, so I looked forward particularly to The Promise, which was released in 2021 and is a brilliant new release by the South African author of literary fiction. The book follows a white South African farm-owning family through decades and chapters of their lives, beginning with the death of the mother, Rachel, a Jewish woman, an outsider, who married an, the Afrikaans, Marnie. The couple has three children, Anton, the brilliant firstborn who absconds from military service, Astrid, who capitalizes on her good looks to marry well, and Amor, the youngest and most complex, who overhears a conversation about a promise Rachel made to the family's domestic worker, Salome, to hand over the title deed to the house she has lived in most of her life, which is situated on the farm. And thus the issue of the redistribution of land enters as a central theme. The narrative then tracks the lives of others in a style that seems to break every so-called rule about head-hopping in fiction, spending a paragraph in the head of one character, another paragraph in another's, sometimes stepping out of frame to address the author, sometimes self-consciously being the author. The author has said in an interview that his inspiration for playing with this point of view is from recent film work he had done, and I did get the sense of being behind a camera and following the action in the promise like an observer. I felt like there was a ghost presence in the book, one I initially thought was Rachel, the mother, whose death launches the events of the book. Galgut has been compared to J.M. Kutsia for his sparse, crisp writing and also, it must be said, for its emotional coldness. Others find Galgut funnier and his writing more sprinkled with levity than Kutsia's. James Wood, in his 
book, The Irresponsible Self, on laughter and the novel, refers to J. M. Kutsia's writing when he says, and is one not always a little suspicious of a writer without any comic impulse at all. I have never found Kutsia to be an easy or enjoyable read, so I was interested in whether I would find the lightness of touch in Galgut. Other reviewers have found the book funny and satirical, and I can see some clever and creative and insightful observations have been made by the author. There is also lots of absurdity, and the absurd is often funny. Even in saying this, I realize I'm not being entirely fair. Gelgit does insert humor. There is a Dormini, who is clearly a figure of ridicule, and there are moments when he is very funny. There is also a funeral scene, with a cautiously opened and rapidly closed again casket that is ridiculous and risible. But it's the people whose lives just fail in every meaningful way. None of the protagonists has a happy life. None succeeds to form loving attachments or achieves professional or personal happiness or even, for instance, achieves a political passion. Everyone seems relentlessly unhappy, the relationships unsatisfying, the sex transactional, the lives aimless with no redemption or levity. Is this funny? Does nobody ever laugh in this book? Is life ultimately this unsatisfying? And that leads me to the question, what is funny in a dysfunctional society? What do we laugh at and why? Should we be laughing when people are oppressed around us? Can humor be used subversively and how? Satire, for instance, laughs in the face of power in order to dismantle the powerful and topple the edifice. But that's not what's happening in The Promise. In the promise, the white people, recipients of all the power and unearned privilege conferred by apartheid South Africa, cannot be happy or fulfilled, the author seems to be saying, until the faults in society are corrected. And as long as this family fails to keep the promise of the title, they will fail, fail to thrive, fail to laugh, fail to love, fail to live. It is the bleak and inevitable and courageously honest conclusion of this technically brilliant book, that we have failed so far to normalize our society so nobody gets to live normal lives, not even these perpetrators. Laughter is a luxury for later. I read The Promise recently. Galgut's writing is elegant and beautiful to the touch and to the ear. Next, how about something with horns? John Hanks has been reading Shaping Addo by Mitch Reardon. It's the story of a South African national park. So what say we go off-roading and into the wilds? Mitch Reardon started his career as a ranger in Namibia and South Africa and evolved to become a most successful writer and photographer whose new titles are eagerly awaited. His latest is a highly readable and superbly illustrated conservation success story entitled Shaping Addo, the story of a South African national park. Addo has undergone the most significant transformation over the last 40 years, from being one of the smallest national parks in Africa, with just on 6,000 hectares, to a greatly expanded 182,000 hectare, embracing an unparalleled diversity of landscapes, making it South Africa's third largest national park, with a major commitment to involving and encouraging neighboring communities to understand and support the park's objectives. The history of the establishment and growth of Adobe has been meticulously researched by Mitch Reardon with a justified focus on the successful rehabilitation of the elephant population, which has been reduced 
to just 16 animals in 1920 is part of a campaign to open up the area for various forms of agriculture. I'm sure that for many distance, the name Addo has become synonymous with just one species, elephant. Not surprising when the name is still the Addo Elephant National Park. Text and photographs of aspects of behavior and management of elephants are predominant throughout, as to be expected. But there are also top-quality color photographs and authoritative accounts with several of its fascinating original observations on behavior of the larger mammals found in the park today, interspersed with images of some of the 450 species of birds and the rarely mentioned flowers that bloom after welcome rains. The concluding chapter highlights the expansion of Addo into the marine environment and coastal island, featuring penguins, cape fur seals, humpback whales, southern right whales, and orcas. A striking example of how Addo has evolved and grown to embrace an extraordinary celebration of biological diversity, all of which has been captured so well by the author. An added bonus is the account of some of the first human settlers in and around the park, including those who occupied caves 15,000 years ago, the more recent hunter-gatherers who left behind their shell middens, and the first Europeans who started land transformation for agriculture and timber harvesting often accompanied by well-armed hunters who decimated the region's large mammals. I have no hesitation whatsoever in recommending this book. It is essential reading for all nature enthusiasts and a must-have for anyone planning a visit to this very special part of South Africa. The title again, Shaping Addo, the Story of a South African National Park, written by Mitch Reardon, published in 2021 by Penguin Random House and Straight Nature in Cape Town. And you can buy a copy for 320 rand. And now for something completely different. Vanessa Levenstein spent time with a group of high school students from Hertzlia High and Gardens Commercial here in Cape Town. They read An Imperfect Blessing by South African author Nadia Davids, and then they set about discussing the book together. We recorded the conversation to create our first ever teen book choice podcast, which you can download free on fmr.co.za. Here's an excerpt with huge thanks to Vanessa, all the teens, their teachers, parents, and author Nadia Davids, who collaborated to make this wonderful conversation possible. If you enjoy this excerpt and you're interested in hearing the rest of the podcast, it's ready and waiting for you to download on fmr.co.za. Hello, this is Nadia David speaking. I'm wishing you all a very good morning on this crisp, wintry day. I just wanted to send out a very grateful thanks to Amisha, Leah, Benice, Raiza and Ethan for your very, very thoughtful, careful, insightful questions that invited me to go back to the novel and, and think very carefully and try to remember what some of the impulses were behind writing it. Um, so thank you and I'm, I'm very grateful that you've all spent this time with it and thank you Vanessa for collating the events and for picking the book. Go well everyone. Great, thank you. That was so nice to have Nadia's voice. So let's start with maybe a, a little synopsis of this beautiful novel an Imperfect Blessing by Nadia Davids. Um, an Imperfect Blessing is a coming-of-age story that focuses on a Muslim family, um, in this case the Dawoods, but more specifically the daughter Alia, 
and it takes place during the end of the apartheid era, and it shows how all of these different groups of people come to terms with that, and it grapples with both politics and family life, and there's also a romantic subplot. There's a lot of intense themes in it, but there's also a lot of humor in it too, and I think it's a really important read for us as South Africans. Great. So how do you find that, that the novel worked? That it's blended the kind of macro transition period, as Ethan has said, a coming-of-age novel, and the two, those two stories are blended, the personal and, and the public. How did you find that blending work for you? I felt like it was really insightful. I identified most with Nazreen because she's more chilled, laid back, and keeps more to herself. And she's closer to my age than Alia is. Yeah. So... And you I, consider yourself to be quite laid back, do you? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the way the book is, is written, it's actually touched my heart. And um, the way the things the children went through, and it's really sad um, because they had to like live in like different cultures. They can't like uh, get connected and know each other because, um, because of the skin color and some of the children were... Um, and, and we're not able to see the mm. other children. Mm. Yes. So because mm. of the color, mm. so that makes it different, the huge difference. And other children has to go over poverty and go to school that is not normal, while others have to go to a, a perfect school and the school that is, like, it's good, good education. What Nadia is doing is, I suppose, talking a little bit about the whole creation process. How important it is that we can tell those stories. I just love the way she answers, like, her response is amazing. Um, Amisha, do you want to start? Yeah. A quote I really like from the book is on page 404 in Alia's letter to me. And I quote, He says the hope is that everyone will see and do something, not just see and learn to live with it. So most people are aware of certain things happening around us, good or bad, and don't say or do anything about it, basically. They just accept it as the normal, normality. <laughs> and continue their lives. We should learn to stand up for what is right and stand together to correct what is wrong, whether it be in our daily lives or whenever. Denise, do you want to? I admired the section where Alia met up with a closer girl at school and she was from Kailincha. The most precious part was how humble Alia was towards the girl. Alia wasn't mean to her. She was very nice and did not cause any drama that was going to hurt her. And I love the fact that Alia was, was very respectful to her and treated her equally as she did to her friends. She did not make any difference, but she was there to show her love and made her feel important, no matter how black she was. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Thanks, Denise. Yeah? Leah, would you like to read yours? Um, okay. Um... So I chose a quote which is from the very end of the book um, and it goes At the end of the reading he raises his hands to show he's finished but one, from where she's standing Alia thinks it's a blessing I admired the section where Nazarene wanted to attend mosque with her father but he simply declined because girls are supposed to be where all the women are and then Alia simply asked her what is wrong and Nazarene replied and I quote Pushing boundaries that's the only way to change things. You ask for more than they'll give, but as much as you deserve. And for me, that quote showed me that Nazarene is actually more intelligent than she lets on. It also makes readers realize that this era affected teens as much as it affected mm -hmm. adults. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I picked this section because it made me laugh, and I thought that it was a nice bit of comic relief in between some of the more intense things going on in the book, and um, the passage is, Alia spied Mikhail coming towards them. Unlike almost everyone else, he didn't have to fight to get through the crowd. He had that special gift of being able to attract and repel people at whim. They passed as he stalked through, improvising moves to accommodate his path as if they were the chorus line in a Broadway show and he was the overpaid lead. When Alia tried to explain it to Nazreen later, it's like he has this private magnetic force field or something. Her sister snorted it, saying, it's called being popular. I just thought it was Just walking in the rain Getting soaking wet Torture in my heart By trying to forget Just walking in the rain So alone and blue Because my heart still remembers you People come to window They always stare at me Shake their heads in sorrow was Just Walking in the Rain, sung by Johnny Ray. My name is Paige Nick, and you are exactly where you should be right this very second. Tuned in to everybody's favorite book show, Book Choice, on Fine Music Radio, brought to you by Exclusive Books. Shiloh Matsunyane, bookseller at Exclusive Books, joins us for a closer look at some of their big reads. Exclusive Books has what we call homebrew, the whole month of July nationwide in all our branches. It is a celebration of a uh, Local authors are telling our own stories. And the following two books are on our homebrew list. The first book is a visionary novel by Dr. Cindy Wamagona titled When the Village Sleeps, published by Pan Macmillan. 
It is born out of an article Dr. Magona read of a girl planning her pregnancy at 13 and having the baby at 16, also confessing to having taken drugs and alcohol in her pregnancy to get rid of the baby. The story is told through the lives and spirits of four generations of Amatolo women, Otolo, Odlangamandla, and Old, whose haunting poetry serves as guidance, protection, and advice to the women. It is set between the informal settlement of Kwanel in Cape Town, where social ills of substance and alcohol abuse and teenage pregnancy are evidenced, to the rural of Esi Dwadweni in Eastern Cape, where Kulu retires to, where subsistence farming is uh, the order of the day. The Thombe family of Kulu, mother to Phyllis, Phyllis, mother to Busisiwe, the main protagonist, and Mandagazi, the daughter to Busisu, goes through levels of disappointments, grief, anger, frustration, but courage. The story reminds the elders of the role they still hold in their societies to impart knowledge and wisdom to the younger ones, to respect human life and the environment they live in, and also teaches communities on self-reliance to overturn their adversities. A good and well-written book for book clubs. The second book is titled For My Country, Why I Blew the Whistle on Jacob Zuma and the Guptas by Temba Maseko, published by Jonathan Bo. Mr. Temba Maseko gives account of his political life from his early years as a student activist at VETS to becoming ANC MP, then CEO of GCIS, Government Communication and Information System, and the country's spokesperson under President Tabumbegi and President Jacob Zuma. He tells of his frustrations of being sidelined and being made the enemy of the state after refusing to help the Guptas in channeling the advertising budget of state departments into their company under President Jacob Zuma's administration. In this book, you will read of a man whose only crime was putting his country first and upholding its constitution. A man who, according to himself, did his job to the best of his ability and never knew that it would become a crime under his party rule, the ANC, to say it in his own words. Cutting a lonely figure, he decides to call it a day in government and looks to the private sector for employment, but struggles to secure a job resulting in more frustrations. The bills kept piling up, and the banks didn't spare him with letters of de demands. Mr. Maseko is still an active member of the society, rallying around to shaping our country, South Africa. A well-written book that every South African who has the interest of the country at heart should read. I recently came across a book called Why Are You Looking At Me? by Jean Duplessis. It's a collection of photographs that frame moments in Jean's journey, each photograph is also complemented by a poem that draws attention to what sits beyond the frame. Since a picture paints a thousand words, we've invited John to tell us about it. Ours is a time of epidemic faking of truth and meaning through manipulation of words and images. The multiple effects of this are dire and visible in all corners of our world, more spectacularly in the daily news, but also in the very fabric of our ordinary daily lives. As a personal response to this terrifying phenomenon, I have over the past few years tried to make sense, dare I say meaning and truth, of some key personal encounters over the past three decades of my working life. I have done this through a combination of my own images and words, and the result is the book, Why Are You Looking At Me? 
The 31 photographs in the book frame moments in my journey to the fault lines of our globalized world. A boy leading oxen in the Eastern Cape, shop dummies in Chelsea, a homeless man in Washington, D.C., a walled-in park in the city of Mashhad, Iran, a scarecrow in Haiti, cellos on ruined walls in Timor-Leste, an old man and his bicycle in Kenya, empty shoes next to a pond. Each photograph is complemented by a poem that draws attention to what sits beyond the frame, revealing questions that both unsettle and inspire. The book is much like the boy in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, who looks directly into the lens and asks, Why are you looking at me? The answers are multi-layered and go to the heart of our differences in position, and yet how to find solidarity and ways to acknowledge our common humanity. Allow me to read you the poem which accompanies a photo taken in 1990 under the title, Even After Matanzima's Tractors Had Gone. In a place called Mvignani, I took a photo of a young boy leading cattle, plowing deep, rough furrows. It was a fine image printed in the milk room. In those days, on principle, I would take copies to people I'd photographed. I took a full day's walking to print my only map. There I took another photo, a grandfather staring at the picture of the boy in fading light. As I did, I realized this might take my entire life. And in many ways, I have ever since been walking up and down that Timbunyani mountain. We've posted the picture Jean refers to on the Fine Music Radio Facebook page. You can find Why Are You Looking At Me at the Book Lounge in Cape Town, the Commune in Joburg, or you can get the book directly from this email address, lonelystaircase.rsa at gmail.com. Our final guest reviewer is Helen Moffat, with some of the books on her radar right now. Helen is a household name in South African publishing. One of our top editors, Helen also wears many other writing hats as an author. Her most recent novel, Charlotte, has been published internationally to much acclaim. For fans of Longbourn and the other Bennett sister, Charlotte is a beautifully told story of marriage, duty and friendship, following Charlotte's story from when Pride and Prejudice left off. It's a fantastic novel. I can highly recommend it. Welcome to Book Choice, Helen. So excited to hear about what you're reading. The late Hugh Knight, a great supporter of local writers, once gave me a book called The Novel Cure. This takes different human ailments, mental and physical, and prescribes a novel that will give the reader insight into or alleviate that issue. I've always wanted to compile a version that features South African fiction and memoir because I've found that a creative work often takes a more emotionally resident approach to a dilemma than a practical or self-help book. I also want to steal a book group concept. If you like that book, you'll love this one, so that I can prescribe local equivalents of popular international authors. So let me start with that fun angle before I get more serious. If you liked Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies, you'll love Fiona Snickers' The School Gates. This belongs to a subcategory of fiction I describe as yummy mummy horror. It details the cutthroat competition between wealthy parents who stalk the gates of private schools and while no blood is shed, there's plenty of bile. A very funny satirical novel with a serious message about helicopter parents. I read it with appalled relish. 
It's the third in a loose trilogy of novels featuring the adventures of the Birchall sisters, and Lord Google will take you to those novels as well as Snickers' excellent backlist of other works, ranging from cosy crime to thrillers to young adult novels and the award-winning literary novel Lacuna. I'd also like to prescribe Dawn Garish's Breaking Milk, which sailed through stiff competition to make it to the Sunday Times Fiction Prize shortlist for all women living solo after their adult children have left the nest. Although an easy and absorbing read, its many layers have stayed with me. A day in the life of a cheesemaker in the Eastern Cape, it shows how interconnected our lives are even when we think we're alone. From her unsettled relationship with her daughter, whose baby twins face dangerous surgery, to the goats she tends, to the complexities of her relationship with her staff, Kate is always having to consider the impact of her decisions on others. It also has one of the most awkward and funny sex scenes you'll ever read. Like Snickers, Garish has a wonderful backlist of novels, poetry and two memoirs to savour. Then I want to prescribe the long-listed memoir Death in the After Parties by Joanne Hitchens to those who've been widowed or lost parents. Sadly, present times mean that this includes far too many of you. I must also supply a caveat, this raw, honest and at times irreverently funny account of how the author lost both parents, her husband and her mother-in-law in quick succession and her reflections on the family upheavals that resulted might stir up too much emotion if your loss is fresh. However, I am literally pressing this book upon those whom I know are past the initial stages of shock and grief, but still grappling with how to live with permanent loss. Finally, for an extraordinarily compassionate but clear-eyed insight into how one individual with every advantage can be corrupted by power until he descends into evil, I prescribe Sapiwe, Gloria and Clovo's The History of Man. It's the second in a trilogy of novels about Zimbabwe's recent history, the first of which, The Theory of Flight, won the 2019 Sunday Times Fiction Award. Now its successor has made the shortlist. The contents don't make for easy reading, but I am completely spellbound by the author's style, which is as clear and lyrical as running water. Yet the complexity and wisdom of her insights into the failings of the colonial project and her empathy for her protagonist, a man who heads up the sinister secret police organisation, will make you feel richer and wiser for having read this book. And that wraps up our bookie adventures for the month. A huge thank you to all our reviewers and our guest reviewers, to Mwandi and Wesley for putting the show together, and to Rick Everett for compiling the music. If you missed anything, the Book Choice podcast will be up on fmr.co.za. We're playing out with Wild as the Wind, sung by Johnny Mathis, as we wish you a warm winter full of love, good health, and good books. Until next month, from all of us at Book Choice. Love me, love me, say you do Let me fly away with you For my love is like the wind And wild is the wind Give me more than one 
the rest Satisfied is hungriness Let the wind blow through your heart For wild is the wind You touch me I hear the sound of mandolins You kiss me And with your kiss the world begins Your spring to me Like a leaf clings to a tree Oh my darling cling to me For we're creatures of the wind And wild is the wind The wind Wild is my love for you Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. FMR.